We're in this series uh, called The Jesus Trailers. We're looking at the book of Isaiah. And uh, it is, uh, for me, it's a really exciting series because we're, we're looking at a book that was written about seven centuries before Jesus came to the earth. So we're talking 2,700 years ago. And this morning we're going to look at maybe one of the sections of Isaiah that's less known. It comes right uh, almost in the middle. And so as you're working your way through Isaiah, let me encourage you, read it. Just as much as there will be bits you don't get and sections that are confusing, just go for it. Read it and be looking for Jesus. Uh, That alone will make it worth it. And as you're going through, you'll find that chapters 13 to 23 is just heavy going. It's 11 chapters where Isaiah is speaking to all the nations around at the time. He's saying, Egypt, here's God's perspective on you. And Moab, here's God's perspective on you. And Babylon, this is what God thinks. And so it's kind of a heavy section for 11 chapters. And it's kind of pointing out the fact that the God of the Bible is not a small little local God who just, you know, kind of is the God of these people. This is the God over all nations. And so he can speak to all nations. And as you come to the end of that sequence of, I think it's 15 uh, nations that are addressed in that section, you come to chapters 24 to 27. And 24 to 27, the scholars, not that we're too worried about them, but the scholars call this the mini-apocalypse of Isaiah. And you go, mini-what? Mini-apocalypse. The book of Revelation is known as an apocalypse. It's kind of the kind of cataclysmic, here's the end of everything kind of a section. And in this four chapters, we kind of get that from Isaiah, this here's the end of the story. Here comes the judgment. And and so if we had the time and if we wanted to, we could read through chapter 24 and just get this overwhelming picture of God's judgment where he shuts it all down. I remember um, as a child... Uh, one of my favorite things to do was to walk into, we lived in a village in Italy, and I used to walk into the center of the village with my dad to go to the post office, because he had a P.O. box, it was safer, I think. So he'd go into the post office, get his post, sometimes we'd get a treat, which was my main reason, and then we'd walk home. And, and I remember there were a few occasions where the car park, which was kind of the center of the village, wasn't full of cars. It had been kind of coned off. And And I remember kind of wondering what was happening and then seeing the big lorries coming in with the big paintings on the side and the the kind of folded up fairground rides with all the light bulbs. And they'd come in and they'd set it up during the day and then in the evening we'd come back with my parents. And and for a a small boy, this was like the world is now complete. You got the, uh, what do you call them? The kind of bumper cars, the dodgems. That was the main feature. And then there was the, the hanging kind of punch ball that you you know, teenagers would hit and then get a score. And there was all these flashing lights and the loud music and the smells. You think we do food in this country at a fair. Imagine Italian food. I mean, it was just incredible. The noise, the smell, the sounds, the, the, the laughter, the mirth and merriment, as they say. It just was an amazing atmosphere. And as a child, I remember being in that briefly until it was bedtime and, and kind of getting to ride on the cars and getting to, to just kind of watch and see all this stuff that was going on. And it was like the rest of the world disappeared. It was like that was living. That was life. You know, that was it. Why do we need anything else? Let's live in a fair. And then after a couple of days, some night when I was asleep, all of those things would roll out of town. And the next morning, I go to the post office with my dad, and the car park would just be desolate, empty, just litter, nothing else. 
And it just, it just seemed so unreal. Like it was there and then it was gone. Fast forward 30 years, we lived in Surrey and across the road from us, there was this field. I suppose it was called the green, just to make it sound better, but it was a field. And, and there was uh, just grass there, not much else. But sometimes, twice a year, all the lorries would show up and they'd roll in and all the rides would get set up. And, and my children used to beg me, Daddy, Daddy, please, can we go? Can we go? Can we go? And, and we'd go over and we'd pay inordinate amounts of money and, and go on these rides. And I could see the same look in their eyes that I used to have in mine. With the lights and the music and the noise and just the, the excitement. This is living. This is it. But then it would all leave. And there would just be tire tracks in the mud and litter all over the normally beautiful field. And, and that's kind of how Isaiah 24 feels. It, it feels like the, the whole of history has been one great big fair. And now God has just pulled the plug. It's all gone, it's finished, it's just desolated, and it's empty. In uh, Pilgrim's Progress, a book by John Bunyan some time ago, years ago, he wrote this about the Christian life, and in it he describes when uh, Christian and his friend Faithful come to the town of Vanity. And Vanity is just flashing lights and, and, and displays everywhere and uh, you know, sellers of wares and all that kind of thing. And, and they're walking through this town with all the kind of the, the lustful images and all the kind of enticement that was there. And somehow it just felt empty to them. In fact, because they didn't just buy in and get sold out and kind of get caught up in it, that town eventually put them in a cage and made them one of the sideshows to be pointed at and laughed at and mocked. And that's how our culture is, isn't it? If you don't jump up, cheer and clap with every new thing that the culture says is right and appropriate, after a while they start to look at you and say, what's wrong with you? You must be weird. Let's put you in a cage. Let's point and mock at you. But ultimately, Vanity Fair closes down. And that's what Isaiah 24 is describing. Just this total desolation. It's as if for all of human history, humans have been trying to create life and it's as empty as a fair, sort of candy floss for a diet. Noise and music and lights, but there's nothing of any substance to it. And ultimately, there's going to come a point where God says enough and he pulls the plug. And you'd think that actually going through that chapter, it would be just such a, a depressing chapter. But in the midst of it, Isaiah, the, the prophet, as he writes, he describes the sound of singing. He hears the singing coming from the distance. And that creates a bit of a weird question for us. And it's an important question. And that is this. Why is it on a Sunday like this, when we're remembering millions of people who've died in war, when we're, we're, we're really kind of somber and aware of, of the reality of death a hundred years on since the start of the Great War. How is it that we can have a full band and we can be really singing? And if you survey the, the religions of the world, you, you, one of your questions ultimately should be, why is it that Christians sing? Because the others don't. Oh, the others pray and do rituals and do pilgrimages and do religious stuff. But Christians sing. Some of us can't carry a note any more than we can carry a bus. And yet we just can't help ourselves. We sing. And so what, what, what is that? Why is it that in the context of ultimate judgment, Isaiah hears the sound of singing? Why is it that on Remembrance Day, across the land, Christians are standing and they're singing? What do we have to sing about? 
If everything's coming to an end, if everything's going to be wiped out, if everything's going to just be desolated, if the tambourine is going to stop shaking and the, the wine is going to t- taste bitter and people are just going to be, oh, this is empty and yuck and gross and finished. If that's the case, then why is there singing? Well, in Isaiah 25, 26, 27, we get the content of some of those songs. We get the song of the banquet hall. We're going to look at that mostly this morning. In 26, we get the song of the secure city. We'll get a little glimpse at that as well. And then in 27, the song of the vineyard. These are kind of the content, if you like, the songs that Isaiah hears in the context of the final judgment. Okay, so let's turn to Isaiah 25. And if someone grabs a a church Bible and can give me a page number, that would be great. 586. Okay, 586. You'll see the, the big number 25, that means it's the chapter 25, and we're going to uh, start at the beginning, but we're just going to drop in kind of midway through, but I'll, I'll make that clear as we go here. So he starts off in 25, right at the start, where he says, "O oh Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. I mean, he's still carrying on from 24. Like the whole hyped up human city that we've tried to generate and create, it's finished. The fair is gone and there's nothing left. But then we come down to verse 6. And in verse 6, we get this song of the banquet hall. Let's look at it because this, to me, is absolutely astonishing material to to catch a glimpse of. Here's Isaiah. He's he's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city, not massive city, not impressive city really, but it's a city on a bit of a mountain. Okay, and so he's standing on that city, on that mountain, and he's pointing to that. He's saying, "Listen to me, people. This is really important. On this mountain." The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. This isn't candy floss and Coke. This is the best of foods. This is the stuff the royal family would eat. Not just cheap, you know, bottle of plonk from Tesco value range, but, but this is really beautiful, well-aged wine. This isn't just a little burger with maybe some meat in it. This is perfect meat and the marrow still there. Forgive me if you're a vegetarian, but this is a wonderful, glorious, royal feast. And, and Isaiah says, God's going to do that. The end of the story is not the emptiness of a fair having left, the end of the story for those that know God is a feast. Feast prepared by God. There's nothing empty to that. There's nothing candy floss and coke about that. It's the fullness of everything as it was intended to be. Here's an important point. God is going to judge. And some people look at that fact and go, I don't like that. I don't want God to judge because what does he know? He's just a spoil sport. We're going to have our fun and he's going to try to spoil it. But that's not the case at all. It isn't that God just wipes out the world for having fun. It's that God deals with the emptiness of fake fun. The emptiness of trying to live human life apart from him. God says, no, that's not what I intended. I intended for you to have the fullness of the richest of feasts. And he's going to do that. He's going to bring that after judgment, feasting for those that are his. 
And I'm sure that knowing God, he'll make sure it's food you like. The richest and the best of foods. The end of the story is not emptiness. It's feasting. And the end of the story is not death. Look at the next verse, verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Wow. All nations, all of humanity, all of human history. It's all felt a little bit empty because ultimately everyone dies. And no matter how much energy we put into it, no matter how much money we put into medical science, and no matter how much we extend lives, we cannot extend lives past death. Death is certain and it just keeps on coming. In Isaiah 5, he describes death, the place of the dead, as having an appetite. Very vivid image, isn't it? Just this idea of a sort of a, a monster that keeps on swallowing. And just think about all the wars, the great war 100 years ago. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers, probably into the millions, that were just eaten up. The Second World War, I, a few months ago, I had the, um, I suppose it's a privilege, of walking around Auschwitz with uh, a couple of friends. And, and Auschwitz one was bad enough, but the second one, it's the big open camp where they couldn't create, they just needed more space for their killing machine. And, and there's this train, it's the famous place where the train track comes in. And they, people would come off the train and they'd walk straight into the gas chamber and they couldn't kill them quick enough. And you kind of, it was just a sick feeling to walk around that and to see that and to think this is humanity let loose against humanity. And it's just like this monster that just keeps on eating. You think about wars, think about terrorism, think about violence. Think about disease and sickness and people dying as we're sitting here from malaria and from malnutrition and uh, Ebola and uh, AIDS and all these different things that are just ravaging the human race and just old age. People are dying and heart disease and cancer and it just keeps on going. It's like this insatiable monster that just keeps on eating. That is death. It just keeps on going. It swallows ultimately everything. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how successful you are. Doesn't matter how fit you are. It doesn't matter how well you look after your body or what you eat or anything. Ultimately, it swallows you. And then we come to 25 verse 7 and it says, he will swallow it. Now that is hope. If anyone can swallow death, we need to be paying attention because we've never seen it yet. No one's managed it yet. You can sleep in an oxygen tank. You can do whatever you like, but death just keeps on eating. But ultimately, he will swallow death. How is that possible? We're going to see that in just a second. But it says that he will swallow up death forever at the end of the story. It's not emptiness, it's feasting. At the end of the story, it's not death, but it's death swallowed. It's life. At the end of the story, it's not tears. It feels like most things end in tears. You take your kids to the fair, and by the end of the evening, they're just crying. You can't cope anymore. You, you give yourself to a career. You give yourself to an ambition. And, and maybe you achieve it, maybe you don't. But often it ends up just kind of being in tears. It's, it's over. It's empty. It's finished. It's gone. But the end of the story is not tears. And I love the way this is put here. In verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will click his fingers and all tears will be gone. It doesn't say that. 
It says, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isn't that beautiful? What kind of God would wipe away tears? That, that involves kind of coming close. That involves reaching out and, and just gently kind of wiping the face with the thumb or the finger. That, that involves a tenderness and a compassion and a heart that, that is hard to imagine in our standard views of God. The Lord God's going to wipe away the tears, the tears of regret, the tears of wasted time, the tears of bad choices, the tears of death and of mourning and of grief and of all the loss that we've endured in this life. He's going to say, yeah, that, that hurts. And I know it hurts. And let me wipe away that tear. At the end of the story, it's not tears. It's divine comfort. What kind of a God would, would reach into our lives ultimately to wipe our cheeks with his own hand? Isn't it the same kind of God that we heard about in the spoken word earlier? The kind of God who steps into our world and becomes one of us and then in the face of death weeps. Jesus was at a funeral when he wept. He fixed the funeral and brought the guy back to life, but still he wept. You, you see, that's the thing. Who is it that swallows up death? Is it just some sort of generic concept? Or is it that Isaiah is giving us a Jesus trailer? I think he is. Because he, he pinpoints it. He gives the location. He says, it's going to happen here, folks, on this mountain. And 700 plus years later, Jesus was born. Just a little bundle of flesh. And he was carried to that mountain by his young mother and stepdad. And he was brought into the temple. And there he was. The one that would swallow up death. Who if you dropped him. Well, let's not go there. The ultimate weakness. 30-ish years later, he was back. Just as Isaiah predicts in another passage we're going to look at soon. Jesus came back to Jerusalem and the people said, we don't want you. We're done with this. And Jesus went to the cross. It was no accident. It was no mistake. It was no PR disaster. This was Jesus' mission from the book of Isaiah and even before. That he would come and he would face death. Because the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. Jesus never sinned. He didn't deserve to die. This is the Christian message. That, that he chose to die in our place. I deserve to die. The things that I've done and thought about doing and said and thought about saying. I'm absolutely condemned by God's standards. I deserve death. And yet I know Jesus died in my place. You see, when Jesus went to that cross and died, it was no accident. It wasn't that things got out of hand. That was the mission. He went to our world. He came into our experience to know what it's like to hurt and to suffer, to know what it's like to weep so that he could wipe our tears. But he stepped into our experience even to the point of death. And he was hung on the cross until his body was dead and he was taken down and he was buried. And that's the end of the story. Unless Jesus is not the same as everyone else. The end of the story for everyone else seems to be that death eventually gets you and that's it. But Jesus, death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him in. Three days later, he rose from the dead, walked out of the tomb. And for the past 2,000 years, lives have been transformed as people have come to know and experience what it is to be in relationship with the living Jesus. The one who has conquered death. 
so that in the future, when the emptiness of the vanity fair of life as we create it is unplugged and it's wiped out, it's not the end of the story in a bleak, bad disaster. It's the end of this mess so that God can put things right with a rich feast, with death no more, with tears wiped away, so that we can have life the way that God intended it to be. Now, there's a very important point here. And Isaiah gives us an incredible, a wonderful picture or a, even a, a kind of a, a listening in to the song of the banquet hall. But then he goes on to make it really clear that this is not something that we can achieve. This is the human tendency always. I can handle it. I'll do it. Don't worry. I can take care of myself. I'll fix it. I'll turn over a new leaf. I'm, I've just got to try a little bit harder. I've got some resolutions lined up for the new year. I can handle it and I can make my life the way it should be. And Isaiah says, no such nonsense. How is death going to be swallowed? Not by your effort. How is uh, the tears going to be wiped and the, uh, the, the feasting going to be established? It's because of him. And so for the rest of the chapter, Isaiah gives us a reminder in the starkest of terms. I, as a preacher, I looked at this passage and I just went, oh, I'm excited to preach this. Because the prophets were so in your face. They so wanted to get your attention that they created these images that are bold as anything. Let's look at this one, 25 verse 9. How is this all going to happen? It will, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. It's going to be God that does it. It's only God that can step in, swallow death, establish feasting and bring about life as it was intended to be. But then Isaiah gives the contrast. And he preaches for just a couple of verses to a nation that was across the other side of the Dead Sea, a nation known for its pride and arrogance, the nation of Moab. Listen to what he says, and then I'll, I'll make sure we've spotted the image. He says, Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Let's, let me just give you that image. Since it's in the Bible, I can say it. If we had a church trip, like a school trip, but a church trip right now, and we piled outside, got in our cars and drove over to Castle Coombe, we could visit the Pryor Farm. And we'd go past the house and round the back and into the cattle shed and we'd find Ben's wonderful cows and he does a great job with his cows. And the cows, of course, are famous for a couple of things, beef and milk, right? But uh, actually, if you examine a cow closely, you discover something else. Go from the head, go past the udders and come past the back legs. There's a tail. And under the tail, there's a pile of stuff. It's manure. And mixed into the manure, there's urine. And it's this gross, liquidy mess. And in that are little bits of straw. And Isaiah says, hey, Moab, that's you. In all your pride, trying to do life in your own strength, you're like a little piece of tr a straw trying to swim your way out of that mess. And just when you think you're getting somewhere, the cow steps back and you're right at the bottom again. And then you try to, that's gross, isn't it? You can see why the prophets got people's attention. That's the contrast to trusting God. You live life your way. You're like a piece of straw trying to swim your way out of a dunghill. It's powerful. 
Are we going to trust God or are we going to trust ourselves? Because the end of the story, for those who trust themselves, will be total emptiness. It will be death. It will be tears and regret and, and, and it will be a disaster. But for those of us who wait on the Lord, who trust him, it's not emptiness, it's feasting. It's not death, it's death swallowed. It's not tears, it's divine comfort. That's what God offers us. And he does it. He steps into our world. He goes all the way to face our death. And he goes into death and it cannot hold him. He comes out victorious. And death is swallowed. And that is why in the midst of death, in the context of all the sorrow and pain and sadness of death, Christians can't help but sing because we know the end of the story. And when we look at what God's done, and we look at what God's going to do, we just sort of explode into song. In chapter 26, he, he goes over the same kind of thing. He, he does a tale of two cities. There's the city of, of human effort, kind of the we can make a name for ourselves kind of city, the lofty city. And it talks about how God's going to bring that down and wipe that out. And it talks about the city that is secure. Look at 26 verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Look at verse 3. You, God, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it and so on. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Verse 3. You, you keep him in perfect peace. There's no word in Hebrew for perfect in that kind of descriptive way. So what they do is they, they repeat the term peace, peace. Not just peace, but like peace, peace. An intensified peace. That's the privilege of those who fix their trust in, Lord, in the Lord. You keep him in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That's what we're privileged with even now even as we anticipate and so there's a song that comes with that there's a there's a, an exuberance that comes out of the heart but again at the end of the chapter Isaiah does the contrast of trusting God and trusting self I just want to give us one more image because it's powerful and I, I was almost I was kind of toying should I share this one or not because this is almost too much but he talks about a pregnant woman he says, you're like a pregnant woman. If, if you're trusting in yourself, you go, imagine going through the whole of a pregnancy, all that is involved in that. And that's hard work, you know, kind of growing appetite and diminishing stomach and, and, and kind of all the discomfort and back and hip. And I've, I've observed that. I just, I respect immensely what women go through. And then you, you go to the point where the labor begins. And the, 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 the pains, the pangs start. And, and I've watched that all the way through five times. It's been an amazing privilege to watch. And I've seen the determination in my wife's eyes to get through the most intense discomfort she's ever faced in order to meet her baby. And that's what gets her through it. At the end of this, whether it's two hours or two days, I'm going to meet my baby. And that's going to make it worth it. And Isaiah describes the labor pains increasing in intensity and coming quicker and faster and longer and, and, and then transitioning into the pushing phase and then the pushing with the, 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 all of that goes into that. And then finally, the moment arrives and what is 
what's given birth to, what comes out, it's just wind. Isn't that a horrible image? Isaiah says that's what it's like to live your life without trusting God. To to go through all of that and in the end to have absolutely nothing to show for it. Can there be anything as agonizing as that? All of the pregnancy, all of the labor, all of the pushing, all of the discomfort, and then ultimately nothing. That's what it's like to live in this world according to our own kind of guidelines and wisdom, trying to figure out how to make a a life for ourselves. And we get to the end and we'll have nothing at all to show for it. However, look at verse 19. 26 verse 19. Your dead, the, the people who have trusted God and died, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is as a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Death's not the end of the story because once death is swallowed, the earth can give birth to those who've died. The Bible talks about the fact that in the end, those who trusted God, no matter what's happened, no matter how their life has ended, the earth is going to give birth to them. Again, they're going to live. We're going to live again to enjoy the feast, to have the tears wiped away, to to be brought into the fullness of the fellowship of the Father and the Son by the Spirit. The, The love of God is going to embrace us fully alive forever if we've trusted him. That's the contrast to the giving birth to air. It's powerful, isn't it? And Isaiah is saying, come on, folks. Trust in this one that I'm giving you the trailers of. He's the one that's going to accomplish this. He's the one that's going to get the job done. He's the one that's going to provide a way. And he's the one that gives us a reason to sing, even in the midst of death. Jesus came 700 years later. He lived. He died on the cross. The grave couldn't keep him. He walked out of the tomb. He was seen by an awful lot of people. He's alive. He's returned to heaven. And a few years later, one of his followers wrote these words. It says this. Still looking forward. Still anticipating the future. It says the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, in the other meaning of the term, is not in vain. The end of the story, for those who will trust in what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, is not emptiness, but feasting. It's not death, but death swallowed. It's life. It's not tears, but it's divine comfort.